What do we mean by revival? Those of you that have read the, uh, the website recently will know that John has put on there a quote from Duncan Campbell, uh, who led the, uh, well, no, God led it. He was God's instrument in the Lewis revival, which I'm sure John will talk to us about later on when he talks about revivals in the British Isles. But Duncan Campbell of us uh, made this statement. Revival is not the church filled with people. It is the church filled with God. And what did he mean when he said that? Just exactly what he said. Is revival filling our churches full of people by whatever means we can, be it special meetings, big name preachers, high profile worship bands, by the way, talking of high-profile worship bands, we are privileged later on in the service to be joined by Stuart Townend as he leads us in worship. That'll be good, won't it? You'll see what I mean later. Or is it, as Duncan Campbell and I believe it is, getting onto our knees, seeking God to bring a fresh outpouring of his power and authority, not only over our church, but also those around us as well. Because as John will tell you, I'm sure, when he talks about the Lewis Revival, I don't want to steal his thunder, it wasn't only the church that was rocked in Lewis. The whole of the community was rocked and people were falling on their knees everywhere, even in the pub, and finding God. When we look into the history of revivals over the years, two things in particular have struck me and they've also struck those ministers that I spoke to in Scotland about each and every one of them. Firstly, as Manjeet was urging us to be a church of prayer, the first one, every revival which has taken place started with prayer. Not necessarily massive prayer meetings, but rather a small group of Christians, in a lot of cases, who believe that God has called them to pray for a fresh outpouring of his might and power from heaven upon his people. And it wasn't as a one-off special prayer meeting, but it was persistent prayer over a period determined by God and not man. And to keep praying until God answered the cry of their hearts. Some of these intercessors prayed for weeks, some for months, and quite a lot of them for many years before God answered their appeals. We have no right to demand that God brings revival to us at a particular time. Let me say that again. We have no right to demand that God brings revival to us at a particular time. But we are promised in 2 Chronicles 7.14 the following. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal 
their land. I want you to note, first of all, that Paul here is talking about us. He's talking about Christians. He's not talking about the world outside, non-believers. He's talking about us. So the first thing we need to acknowledge is where we are in our relationship with God and address any issues we may have with God and with each other. Because as we're told in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord commands a blessing, even life forevermore. Again, it's talking about us. It's talking about God's people. God recognises we're far from perfect and that we need to be constantly on our guard, both in our relationship with him and with each other. Secondly, we need to humble ourselves. Not before men, but before God. We need to restore the fear of God which has to a large extent disappeared from the modern church. Such that we take seriously who God is and what he expects of us rather than doing just enough in the hope that it will satisfy him as so many do nowadays. Note also that we are required to humble ourselves before we pray and seek his face. The implication here seems to be that we need to be in as pure a state as we can be before we pray for revival and seek God's face with no or as few as possible barriers between us and God. Psalm 24 is acknowledged as both a call for revival and an instruction manual on how we can play our part in seeking God to bring it about. And it's worth repeating here. It starts off, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The psalmist is starting off by establishing God's credentials as the creator of all things. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. If you put that section alongside 2 Chronicles 7.14, you will find lots of similarities there. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. 
lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Matthew Henry, uh, that well-known commentator, makes this comment on that particular passage. The splendid entry here described refers to the solemn bringing in of the ark into the tent David pitched for it, or the temple Solomon built for it. We may also apply it to the ascension of Christ into heaven and the welcome given him there. We may apply it also to Christ's entrance into the souls of men by his word and spirit, that they may be his temples. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks, as we're told in Revelation 3.20. The gates and the doors of the heart are to be opened to him as possession is delivered to the rightful owner. In other words, the psalmist is appealing to God to return in glory and take his rightful place in the hearts of men. Something we should be doing if we are serious about wanting revival. Note, he's appealing to, not demanding. God doesn't demand of us. God will never force us. But he's appealing to us because that's what he wants. God's final requirement is that we turn from our wicked ways. There are countless examples of God's people turning away from him in the Bible and going their own ways contrary to his will and having to come back in repentance before God can work with them or through them. We cannot expect non-believers to see any reason to turn to Christ if they see us living our lives exactly the same way as them. We cannot expect non-believers to see any reason to turn to Christ as their saviour if they see us living our lives exactly the same as them. So we need to think about our relationship with God. Is it where it needs to be? Revival, first and foremost, is for the glory of God and the honour of his name. Without exception, each of the ministers I spoke to in Scotland affirmed that statement. Revival, first and foremost, is for the glory of God and the honour of his name. It's not about us demanding him to come and bring revival into us. It's about God and the glory and honour of his name. It is then for the church, the body of Christ and its individual members, so that they can be revived and brought back into a true and correct relationship with God and each other. Thirdly, and as a result of the first two, it is for those who are outside the church 
for the unsaved, that they come under deep and abiding conviction of sin, and that they call upon the name of the Lord who saves them as the Spirit of God descends upon the land. Duncan Campbell speaks of this when the Lewis revival took place in Scotland in the uh, 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And he speaks about many who fell to their knees in the street under God's conviction. And we're told that crime almost entirely disappeared. As I said, I'm sure John will speak more about that when he speaks about British revival. So I'm not going to expand upon that thought at the moment, although there are some amazing things there. And if you want to know more about the Lewis revivals, then if you go on the internet, there's lots of material on there about it. And lots of YouTube on there as well from first-hand witnesses who were there and saw it happening. Talking of which, I had the privilege of speaking to one of these pastors in Scotland while we were there, who had spoken first-hand to a lady who had come to the Lord in the Lewis revival. His question to her was not unnaturally, what was it like when the presence of God came down? What was it like when the presence of God came down in that time of revival? And apparently the lady tried five times with tears of joy streaming down her face to put into words what she had experienced. But was unable, she was unable to find any words to describe the joy and peace she had felt. I don't think there will be any doubt if God chooses to bring revival to the Neaton. J. Edwin Orr, a 20th century evangelist, revivalist and world-renowned revival historian said, in times of evangelism, the evangelist seeks the sinner. In times of revival, the sinners come chasing after the Lord. Selwyn Hughes also wrote, evangelism is the expression of the church Revival is an experience of the church. Evangelism is the work we do for God. Revival is the work God does for us. So over the coming weeks, we shall be looking at the how, why, and the practicalities of revival. But today... I've been asked to look at a few Old Testament revival incidents and explore them a little more. I just want to look at a couple. First, I want to look at 1 Samuel 7, and verses 1 to 15. To put it in the context, the ark has been returned by the Philistines to the Jewish nation because wherever they took it, having captured it from the Jews, the place they left it, underwent severe problems. So in the end, the Philistines said, we've had enough of this, and returned it, realizing that the God of Jacob did not want them to possess it. 
It was placed in a place called Kyrias Jirim, or some variation of that. And stayed there for 20 years. 1 Samuel 7. 1 to 15. And it stayed there, as I say, for 20 years. The Jews at this time, as you can read in the preceding chapters, had drifted away from God and were worshipping false idols. But during the 20 years that the ark was in this place, the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord for 20 years. Samuel was amongst them and gave them sad advice, speaking prophetically. And again, we can see the similarity to what is said in 2 Corinthians 7.14, because he said this, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, that's a big if, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. So having repented of their wicked ways, what does Samuel do? Samuel brought them together and put them to prayer. Doesn't matter where you look, either in modern day revival, in Old Testament revival, or New Testament revival, prayer is at the centre of it all. We just don't give enough credence to prayer nowadays, I'm afraid, or in my opinion we don't. I don't. I'll confess it openly here. We need to become a praying nation again. So Samuel brought them together and put them to prayer, confessing their sins against God. And as they were praying, the Philistines gathered to attack them. But Samuel, at the people's request, continued to cry to the Lord, and the Lord heard, and he defeated the Philistines. And then, following the Philistines' defeat, for a while, the people then continued to worship God alone during Samuel's lifetime. But if you read on, as we, they fell away again. God must get sick and tired of his people not listening to his word and not being constant in their walk with him. Note it took 20 years for God to bring revival to them. God's not in a hurry. I'm talking of... Uh, 
walking away from God and then having to uh, God having to sit there and wait until you come back again. Some of you will know, some of you won't. But, uh, when I was about 19 or 20, I took a big step away from God. I, uh, I joined the police force and I have to say that the pull of the world just took me away from God. And uh, I started doing all sorts of things which were not godly. And it wasn't until 1984, I'll leave you to do the math, that I came back to the Lord. But he waited, and he waited patiently. But he shouldn't have had to have done. I should have been constant. But God is so full of grace and mercy that he does that. He waits for us. Let's look now at Elijah in 1 Kings 18. We see here that praying for revival is not an undertaking to be taken lightly. It requires passion, persistence and patience. Passion, persistence and patience. And an ability to continue to trust God whatever is brought against us. Because God never promised an easy ride. And there will be things that come along which can draw us away from God quite easily, as in my case. So we need to not only have a passion about our prayer, we don't only need to be persistent in our prayer, we don't only need to be patient waiting for God's answer. But we also need to trust him completely in every situation that comes against us knowing and believing that he will bring us through it. First thing that Elijah had to do was to prophesy to King Ahab that there would be drought in the land for some years until he, Elijah, said so. Now that's a pretty strong statement to take before a king. So perhaps we ought to add courage to the list as well. I don't think I would have been too enamoured about having to go to the king of a country and say, hey, mate, until I say differently, there's going to be a drought in this land because God's told me to say that to you. Would you have had the courage to say that? (coughs) Elijah then had to trust God for the provision of food and drink, which we read in chapter 17. God did this firstly by the brook at the Kerith ravine for water, and God also sent ravens to feed him, both morning and evening. That, I think, would have been a, a fair sign to Elijah that he was in God's will. It would have certainly encouraged me. When the brook ran dry because of the drought, God then sent him to the widow at Serathath, who had a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And Elijah said, Come make me a cake, please. So this is the wall of God. And Elijah said, Go make me a cake, please. And God will provide. Not only for you, but also for me through that. And we then read how God replenished the flour 
and the oil each day so that they didn't starve. And at the end of that time, Elijah raised this lady's son from the dead because he had fallen sick. And she cursed Elijah and said, what have you brought upon me? So Elijah went up to the lad's room and lay on him three times and cried out to the Lord to bring this lad back to life. And God did so. And this just reinforced for the lady that she was in the presence of a man of God. God, after three years, only three years this time, not 20 years, just three years, Elijah had to be patient. God tells him to go to Ahab, which might sound a a fairly straightforward command, but at that point Jezebel was after his blood. She'd had all the prophets of God killed in the land, and Elijah was the last one. And she'd got a... uh, a war party out after him and she's got a price on his head and so going to King Ahab was a bit of a risk at that particular point so again he had to trust in God that he was doing the right thing and he did and he went to Ahab and having met with Ahab tells him to send out the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel or something like 600 of them altogether, 400 of Baal and 200 of another. So there were these 600 prophets and there was Elijah. And I think most of us know the story from there on in. But not only did he send, uh, tell him to send the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel, he told Ahab that because Ahab had a go at him and said, what have you brought on us, Elijah? It's all your fault. But Elijah said, no. No, it's not my fault. It's your fault, Ahab. You and your family have brought trouble on Israel by abandoning God's statutes and commands. It's nothing of me. It's all of you. The people of Israel got to hear about this and they all went out to Mount Carmel as well and Elijah addresses the people and asks them to make their minds up. There's a piece in Peter, isn't it, where it talks about being blown about in the wind and not making their mind up. And Elijah here just says to the people, you've got to make your minds up. Either go and follow Baal see what happens there or follow God you cannot serve two masters as I say there then follows the well known story of the sacrifice of the bulls where the prophets of Baal despite crying out for days and tearing their clothes and doing everything they possibly knew how to get Baal to answer their prayers obviously nothing happened They didn't get any response to their efforts. But then Elijah steps forward in faith and prays to the Lord God, having soaked his sacrifice 
with goodness how much water. I wonder where he got the water from. But anyway, there we go. They obviously found it somewhere. And they covered this sacrifice in water such that the trenches around the sacrifice were full of water as well. Just to make it a bit more difficult for God or perhaps to impress the prophets of Baal a bit more. And then he prayed. And as we know, the Lord God brings down fire and everything that was there was consumed. So ferocious was the fire that God brought down upon it. Not surprisingly, on seeing this, the people fell prostrate and declared that the Lord, he is God. And they killed the prophets of Baal and the rain fell and they returned to worshipping God who had shown his awesome power to them. There are, I'm told, another 12 examples in the Old Testament. But I think these two are sufficient to show that God acts in God's way to bring revival in his time whether that be weeks, months or years, that those who are called to pray for revival need passion, persistence, patience and courage combined with a total trust in God. Revival is God's will for the church and he will deliver it as he desires, not as we demand. Well, we need to play our part if we are called to pray for that revival time. Amen.